we literally did every single thing you could possibly do wrong to keep Instagram alive. And look at where it is today. You too have a chance, kids. That's Kevin Systrom of Instagram. If you have a smartphone, you might have seen it. If you've ever wondered, how did they pull this off? Here comes the real story. We have both Instagram co-founders, Kevin Systrom and Mikey Krieger. Let's get their scoop on what happened and without the filters. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with the founders of Instagram. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. Instagram launched in 2010 and had more than 1 million users in two months and 10 million users in the first year. To many, it's one of tech's quintessential lightning strikes, a billion-dollar success that seemingly came out of nowhere. But Kevin and Mike have stared down many difficult problems along their path to greatness. Perhaps most important, knowing when not to listen to even their closest of friends who kept telling them they were doing it wrong. So how did they do it? What did they get right that made all the difference? What can we learn from their journey? We are lucky to have a chance to talk to both of them to find out. Let's do this. Kevin Sistrom and Mike Krieger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Great to excited here. to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. I'm excited too. I think so will the listeners. Kevin, maybe we should start with you. You didn't start a company called Instagram, or at least that wasn't the initial idea. How did you start with a check-in app called Bourbon and end up pivoting it to Instagram? It wasn't even a pivot. It was an unintentional not getting to the finish line. <laughs> it was a fun little check-in app, and it was HTML only, so it worked in the browser. It wasn't an app you could download. You just sent someone a link. So we had about, well, sorry, I should say, I had about 80 people using it at the time, and one of them was actually Mike. And when I went to raise money, I, you know, I happened into about a half a million dollars of funding, which by the way, at that time was a lot of money. Yep. Raised that money basically on the idea that I would find a technical co-founder because I think the writing was on the wall that I could get things to like an interesting product point, but not to the you know, point they needed to be. That's when I ran into Mike. And so you approach Mike. Now, so Mike, when you connect with Kevin, it's still bourbon. It's still bourbon. We're at coffee shops on the weekends. I'm working on side projects and bourbon was still a side project becoming a company for, for Kevin at that point. And it felt like a product or a product area that had a lot of potential and was still untapped. I think you were excited because you were a user initially, right? Absolutely. It was the first take on, I mean, location-based services was so powerful, like such a catchword at the time or buzzword. But it was the first take of it that I was like, oh, I, I can see this working. But once we were finally, you finally landed, I remember your first official day, we were sitting outside and I was just, I was like, oh man, like, we're going to have to not do bourbon. And he was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay, but how old were you at the time? Oof, 26, 27 probably. Okay, and how old were you? 24. So you guys, now you're back at bourbon, and uh, but no, not exactly, because maybe you've decided it's not going to be bourbon. Right. So Mike was like, okay, <laughs> tell me more about what we're not going to be. Every time I give bourbon to someone that isn't a friend, they don't use it. Every time I give it to a friend, they love it. And I was like, this is a problem. Like we gotta grow beyond the 80 people that I happen to know. 
So at that point, we decided, okay, we went back to the office at Dogpatch Labs and sat in front of this whiteboard, and we wrote out the things that Bourbon did well. Like, what were the core components? Uh, one was plans. You could make a plan to go hang out with people, basically. It was like a future check-in. I thought that was pretty neat, right? Yeah. Um, there were some other things that it did. I don't remember what we wrote down, but the last one was photos because we were like, yeah, that is pretty cool. No other check-in app does photos. And we talked about it, we talked about it, and we were like, you know what? Photos seems like the area that's ripe for a lot of work. So we circled it, and then we just decided that's it. We're going to get rid of everything part of Bourbon that isn't the photos, and we're just going to take the photos. We're going to make the check-in optional. So it's going to be photo leads. Check-in is like an optional add-on to the photo. And what's funny is I remember giving that app, which was basically Instagram V1, to people who were using bourbon at the time. And they're like, what are you doing messing around with this? Like, this is- You had the magic. This is terrible. Bourbon's great. Like, why are you, The sinking feeling of getting feedback on something that you're like trying to make happen in the world by your early customers who love this other thing. I mean, listen, if we had listened, there would be no Instagram today. Yeah. And I don't know why we didn't listen. I think it was just because we knew where bourbon was headed. We knew it couldn't expand beyond these 80 people but we knew Instagram had something that the world needed and we believed in it. You were passionate about photography, I was too. We really wanted it to exist in the world and I think that just slightly overcame the inertia. It, now, but in hindsight though, Kevin, you had a kind of a previous relationship to the topic of photos from your time in Florence, I think. So like, what's up with that? I have always loved photos and it's funny, looking back at Instagram, of course this is the company we would have started and I, I would have run like it, Mike, like you were into photography too. It's like, you look back at your personality and you're like, of course, this is the thing we worked on. That's because I was so passionate about photography in the past. And I remember a specific instance. I, I was in Florence studying abroad my junior year. I took a photography class and I showed up with this beautiful camera that I had saved up for. And it was a nice lens. And I was going to take all these really sharp, detailed photos and my photography teacher, Charlie, takes my camera and he says, you're not going to use this this quarter. It's like, use this instead. And it was this plastic camera called a Holga. And uh, it took square format film, uh, medium format film, uh, but square in aspect ratio. And it had this blurry lens. It was a plastic lens and maybe cost like $4 for the camera, right? And he said, just use this for the next few weeks and then we'll talk about it. So I learned that you could take a bad lens a bad camera, take blurry photos. And then he was showing me how to develop them. And he was like, hey, you can add these chemicals to kind of like change the tone of these photos, effectively like a filter, right? I remember loving those photos. They were artsy and beautiful. I mean, they weren't perfect. It was like beauty and imperfection. And that was, you know, my junior year of college. So this is now many years later. But when we were looking at the iPhone at the time, the camera just wasn't that great. I mean, I, I know people take it for granted now with like three lenses and everything. Back then it was it was barely a photo. It was like blurry and, uh, but I was like, oh, if, if we kind of like, you know, go after this this old school square format look with, with filters, like maybe that'll feel right. It's like a vintage feel. Yeah. yeah. So what you end up doing is you end up looking back on your history like, and the things that have inspired you and you ask how you can incorporate those learnings into your business. And in this case, uh, it just happened to work because it turns out people loved the idea of filtering their photos and having it be square. And it's okay that the photos weren't that good because they were like artsy statements. What's funny is Instagram today, I don't think people talk about filters at all. 
So what mattered then doesn't matter now, but man, did it matter at the moment. And I think it was because the cameras were so bad. And, and uh, were you calling it Instagram yet or was it Scotch or what code was name. it? Code name, literally code we name. Learned, we learned we were bad at naming. It had an icon at that time that I think was just like a, it was a, I don't even think it was the cool camera yet. I think it was like a lame icon and it just had code name. And we, we had people use it. And of course they were like nonplussed about it. Um, the real magic came when I was like, I was exhausted. Mike was exhausted. Our users are telling us, all 80 of them are telling us they don't want to use this thing, right? And I was like, all right, I need a break. So my wife and I went to Todos Santos, Mexico, uh, which, you know, it's um, right, it's nearish to Cabo. And it was great. Like we just, we were in the middle of nowhere and I was soul searching about what to do. Um, and actually, I was down there, and that's when I got the call that the company I had been at was acquired. And I was like, oh, man, what am I doing? Like, this makes no sense. Like, I didn't realize I, that. I yeah, could have been a contender. Uh, yeah, I could have been. <laughs> but I went on this long, and I, it's not uh, metaphorical. It was a real beach walk with my wife, or sorry, at the time, girlfriend, Nicole. And uh, we were walking on the, uh, on the beach, and I was just like, ah, I don't really know where this is going. Do you think you're going to use Codename? She's like, no, I don't think I'm going to use Codename because – I really like how my photos look. Like I'm embarrassed by the photos that I take. And I was like, why? And she's like, well, all your friends' photos are so good. They're all like nice and interesting. And I was like, oh, that's just because they filter their photos. She's like, oh, you should probably add filters then. I was like, oh my God, you're right. Like that makes total sense. Like filters should just be built into the app because then like it would be really easy to make these terrible iPhone photos look great. So I went back to the room. I worked on what was effectively dial-up internet in Mexico to research on like Stack Overflow, like how to change an image's look. Uh, and I wrote the first, that day wrote the first filter, which was X-Pro2. I checked in the code, I showed it to Mikey, and I, the first photo ever on Instagram is of my wife's foot, a stray dog, and a little bit of a sign of a taco stand um, in Todos Santos, uh, Mexico. And I remember thinking, oh, this is cool. I actually want to take lots of photos with these filters. This It created an urge to want to create. Uh -huh. And, uh, and th I think the rest was history. I mean, I came home and we worked on what, three or four more filters. And it was probably a few weeks until we launched at that point. Yeah. Upon reflection, I think understanding that you need to solve someone's deep problems that they have with technology or in their life with your solution is how you understand whether or not it's going to go well. And when we started Instagram, uh, working on Instagram, we wrote down the core problems with photos at that time. Um, one was everything was slow. Everyone could agree in theory that you wanted to share a photo with a friend, but no one wanted to because you would take it on your phone and you'd be like, God, it takes forever to upload over you know, the mobile network. And at that time, it was like 3G. There was no LTE. There was no 5G. None of that, right? Yep. Um, so s speed was one of them. The second was my photos don't look good. Like I I'm embarrassed to share this photo because it should look good if I'm going to share it. So that was the second problem. And the third was there were so many places to share a photo that like if I shared it on Twitter, then I wasn't sharing it on Facebook. If I was sharing it on Facebook, then I wasn't sharing it on Foursquare or Posturus or whatever existed at that time that we shared to, right? And we're like, all right, we want to make this extremely shareable. So we had those three problems and we literally designed the entire product around those three things. To make it fast, we uploaded the photo in the background while you were entering the caption. I don't know if it still does it today, but basically people take enough time entering their caption, thinking about what they want to say, that by the time you're done entering the caption and you click done, 
and upload, it's already uploaded. So it felt fast. It feels and it felt lightning fast. I remember everyone using it the first time. was like, oh my God, how'd you get it? To, like, awesome. it's so fast. When in fact, it took exactly the same amount of time. We just used your time more efficiently. The second one was we made filters, right? We let you take your photos and make them quote unquote better or more shareable. And then the last one was not only helpful for our growth, but also it solved a consumer problem, which was people wanted to share across many places all at once. So we integrated sharing into Twitter, Facebook, Posturus, like what were the other ones? Tumblr. Tumblr, like, uh, yeah. So we had the whole list and with one click, you could share to all these places all at once. And I think when you understand what a human wants to do and what hurdle you have to overcome, you just solve for those hurdles. And then it turns out people really love your product. And when did you come up with the name Instagram? Because that has a better ring to it than code name. That was those two weeks. I remember you had this, by the way, this is a theme in our company. Mike has the hard job. I have the dumb job. Mike was like doing all the technical stuff at this point, like, you know, polishing the edges before it would go out making sure it was, you know, production ready. And I was researching names and I would sit there making a list and making a list. And I remember one of them was Instalux. Do you remember that mm -hmm. with an X? And, uh, and I came across some blog post somewhere where it said something like Instagram, And I, it was like about photography and I was like, ah, that's it. Like, I remember the feeling of going, yes, that. And I pulled Mike over and I was like, how about Instagram? And we were like, yes. My wife was in advertising at the time. And I asked her and she's like, yeah, I think that could work. Like, you know, with the right, you know, brand around it, I think it'll, it'll go. It's like, okay. Like multiple people feel like it's an okay name. It's always scary when you tell somebody the name that you're going to get oh, yeah. your product. Right. But I think it, it resonated. There's a you. dozen reasons to talk yourself out of any name. Maybe that's one of the more interesting themes that we went through. It was just like, there are a dozen reasons to talk yourself out of everything. I found like even our own, in our own current pursuits, it's like you want to go work on an idea or an area and there are going to be 50 people lined up with reasons to not do that. I remember when we told people we're pivoting to photos, we were really nervous because this bourbon thing is what they invested in. This photos thing was new. You know, everyone was like, why are you going to go work on photos? There's no money in Everybody's photos. doing photos. Well, no, at the time it was like, I don't know, Treehouse and Pick Please and a few others. And it was just like, I don't know. There's not like videos. It's never been a big exit. Exactly. Got like Flickr, 25 million yes. bucks. Who cares? Exactly. Yeah. It was like, who cares? This is going to be meaningless. Man, I don't know why we didn't listen to them, but like we didn't. And I think we just loved the idea so much that we came up with the name. And then two weeks later, uh, we launched. And I remember sitting in my bed. It was midnight. We had decided to launch it at night so that it was like a soft launch. Um, we had a bunch of press lined up the next morning. We had told the New York Times. We had told like everyone, right? Um, and I pressed the submit button for the app store uh, and instantly people started signing up. And Mike and I were watching the logs and we're like, wait, what, what's happening? It's midnight. This makes no sense. It's like now it's 1230 and wait, more people are signing up. And I was like, Mike, wait, let's look at the logs. And we were looking at email addresses. Do you remember this? Yeah. And I was like, oh. Like Googlemail.de. I was like, oh, that's right. It's daytime somewhere in the world. Like, this is how like naive we were as founders. We had we had totally forgotten that midnight in the US doesn't mean people don't sign up because it's it's daytime. You're like, nobody away. is awake in San Francisco exactly. right now. <laughs> right. So we just had people pouring in from overseas because we had we had done I, I don't know, three or four weeks of like promotion. We had given it to a handful of people early, remember? We would run this uh 
contest on Twitter where we would give people one invite to the pre-release beta. This was like, we didn't have a playbook that we were operating on. We were just sort of every week doing what we could. You mentioned the like reaching out to journalists. I mean, we literally just got a list of maybe 50 to 100 reporters and wrote them an email. Like not like, oh, this person that I already know. It's like, hey, we built something that we think is cool. Do you want to try it out? Like we have some like beta invites to come and join. And enough wrote back and, you know, that. In fact, most of them, dude, I remember telling someone in the PR world, like we were going to email the New York Times. And they were like, you're crazy. Why would the New York Times talk to you? And I was like, I don't know. I just, e- I'm going to email them. And they're like, don't email them. I was like, ah, I'm going to email them. And I remember emailing and I still remember her name. Her name was Claire. The, the uh, Claire Kane Miller? That sounds. That's right, I think. Yeah. yeah. Huh. I'll be darned. It, yes, I think it was. And she interviewed, remember she came to yeah. Dogpatch Labs, interviewed us. And she was like, okay. And we were like, okay, we have no idea. Is this going to be like a story or not? What's interesting is that day we launched, it was a story and it literally brought the site down. Like we had so much attention because we had reached out to all the, it was the New York Times, the LA Times, the Washington Post, and they all answered yes and wanted to write about it. I don't know why, by the way, but they did. And uh, and that amount of attention that quickly, we spent the next three days literally just trying to keep the site running. What's funny is like now, if I were to go back and like do a startup now, I would probably convince myself, oh, like, you know, forget that we did Instagram for a second. Imagine just like, you know, I worked at a company for 10 years or whatever left. I don't think I would ever think to email the New York Times because I'd be like, there's no way they're going to email back. Part of the naivete of a founder is like the important part because it turns out some do write back and it's really important to try because you don't lose anything if they don't write back. Yeah. And some things that can go right do go right. Totally. So honestly, taking those chances on like believing in the idea, believing in the name, believing in the founding team, and also believing that someone would care led to basically the first three days just not sleeping. I mean, yeah. So, like, what was that? So, so you launch and now that the, it blows up and like you can't keep the servers running. Like, at first it blows up for a bunch of dumb reasons. Like, uh, you know, the little fave icon you put in your browser, like when you visit a website. So we had forgotten to set one or just didn't get around to it, and it's no big deal. It just shows up blank, right? Except that uh, issues what's called a 404, like not file, not found. And we had it configured to email us every time there was a 404. So literally every time somebody visited Instagram.com for like a good hour on launch day, we got an email saying file, not found, file, not. So that took down the site once. Right, because it was so busy trying to email the both of us that we didn't have an icon set. And the problem was we had the same server that was serving our website that everyone looked at from the New York Times, et cetera, was also serving the, the, the service for the app. So it took down both, if that makes sense. So the stupid icon, I can't remember how we figured out that it was the icon. And it took a while too. And we're, you know, on a single server in LA on one of these like shared hosting providers. We're not on AWS. AWS was like a thing, but not really a huge thing yet. And I remember calling them and saying, Hey, like we launched this thing. It's blowing up. We need another server. And they're like, cool, uh, it's about four-day turnaround for the server, so we'll get back to you when it's ready. I'm like, no, no, you don't understand. We're on, like, Daring Fireball and TechCrunch. Like, you got to, like, fix We've it We've become a thing. And they're like, oh, yeah, we got an express option. It'll take four hours. And meanwhile, like, we're talking, like, do we need another server? I think we need another server. Let's do it. And I got so frustrated because I was penny-pinching. I was like, we don't need another server. Like, And Mike was like, we do. And I think I count that as literally the one fight we've ever had as a co-foundership. Yeah. Like, that was a heated debate whether we needed another server or not. I am gladly 
on the wrong side of history on that one. <laughs> and the funny part is actually like we had so much, so much the clown shoes, we called them. Like we were just gotten so much wrong on that first one because we were just trying to get a product out the door. We weren't super worried about scalability that like we actually ended up not even getting that second server and survived with a single server and then moved to AWS. So you were actually right in the short term, the long term we obviously needed to And So you're not, sl- basically you've got several days of no sleep. What is each of you doing while you're not sleeping? Well, we're both trying to figure out what's going wrong with the site. And, you know, it's this fun, well, I shouldn't call it fun. It's this challenging, interesting detective work of like, oh, it's the fave icon or, oh, it's, and we would find these things. And then there would be relative points of calm because generally everyone would go to sleep. And, but Mike would be like, all right, we're going to get this other thing done before tomorrow, before the sun rises and everyone starts using this thing again. But I was like, how can I be useful right now? And then there was a moment where I was just so out of my league in terms of technical ability that I was like, I think, I think Mike needs Red Bull. So <laughs> I literally just, I went to the store across from Dogpatch Labs and I just bought a bunch of Red Bull, some animal crackers, cause I think Mike likes animal crackers and I bought some Doritos and I came back just with like a lot of Red Bull and I was like, I feel bad, but this is like the one way I can be useful right now is just provide fuel for Mike <laughs> to like fix the servers. Anyway, so we're sitting there and he's like, wait, it's happening again. What's happening? And it, it was that Japan, that the sun was rising in Japan. And it turns out Instagram had actually taken off, you know, f- for our scale in Japan. And I remember I called, this was like, um, you know, the dial an expert or whatever on who wants to be a millionaire. I'm like, I knew a couple of people from Mebo that had worked on systems. And I remember calling my friend Sean. I'm like, Sean, I'm looking at my server and there's this number called a load average. And right now it says it's like 128. He's like, 0.128? I'm like, no, 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 128. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> like that number needs to be like sub three and on a good day. So he came over and looked at it and was like, oh, there's like all these things that you guys need to do. So we were like, all right, we got to get to get onto AWS. Apparently that's the key. So um, I had called Adam D'Angelo, who's one of our angel investors. Or was he an angel investor at that point? I think he was just a friend. Adam from Quora. Yeah, well, from Facebook at the time. Oh, he he hadn't started Quora yet. I think he had just started, but he was ex-Facebook CTO. So I was like, this guy knows how to scale things, right? So he was like, oh, I'm surprised you guys aren't on AWS. And I was like, what's AWS? (laughs) And I'd just like to point out, think of every fact you've now heard in this podcast. Ask yourself, would you have invested in this group of people? (laughs) Okay, We literally did every single thing you could possibly do wrong to keep Instagram alive. And look at where it is today. You two have a chance, kids. Yeah. <laughs> so then, um, so you're feeding Red Bulls and uh, and animal crackers to Mike. And this is going on now for several days. Like, how many hours of sleep did you get, Mike, in those I think we got, like, right? maybe a stretch of four hours a night where we would go. There was a couch at Dogpatch Labs. I remember because somebody lived on that couch. Remember that guy? He was, like, somebody who, like, just basically lived it. And so we had to kick him out and basically nap there for a few hours. And we that was three, four days. And finally, I remember, I think Saturday morning, we launched on a Wednesday maybe. Saturday, we're like, all right, the site's stable. We just need to go home and get some sleep. And I needed to go home because my girlfriend and I had just moved in together and I hadn't even been to the new apartment we had moved into yet. So I remember us like getting on Muni, writing Muni and being like, all right, I'll see you in like a day or two. Of course, we saw each other probably within like six or seven hours because the site went down again because Japan woke up. But yeah, four days, basically no sleep. Got an underwear delivered. It was like those crazy. So days. just four days of just, you know, whack-a-mole triage, yeah. you know, oh, Japan likes it. What are we going to do about that? Learning oh. on yeah. the spot. 
it was just like, it was a crash course in how to keep something running. It was life support. So then now Instagram's starting to work, but over time you, you were willing to question some of the core assumptions, right? I remember you guys have told me that you had sacred cows that you had to revisit, you know, like Android or Square Photos in the first place, a bunch of these things. So like what sacred cows were you forced to face over time as this thing took off? We'll tackle the Android one first. So this was 2012. So we've been around for a little less than two years, actually. And and we realized, hey, if we want to grow internationally and really serve the people we want to serve, we actually do need to be on Android. And, you know, the Android devices had evolved, but the cameras were nowhere near at the time where the iPhone was. And it took, you know, several more years for them to catch up. And telling the community, like, hey, we're going to launch an Android app, you'd expect that people to be like, oh, great. Like, my friend who has an Android phone can join now. We got huge backlash, huge people. Yeah, are, you're going to – it's the lowest common denominator. You're going to ruin gonna the ruin photos. The... They're going to look bad. Um, in Brazil, they called it – people are going to come and, like, ruin our party. And it's like, whoa. Like, there, I think there's actually a lot of, like, classism built in there, like, if you really peel it back. But we were like, why wouldn't you want everybody in the world to be able to use this thing? Um, even internally, I think there was some pause around like, oh, do we want to do Android? Like, but the photos aren't going to be as good and like, they're not going to be as beautiful and it's going to like ruin the brand. And there's no world in which we shouldn't have built an Android It is app. funny now to think it was even a decision, but I, I remember being involved with a lot of mobile first, you know, gaming companies across the board and, and it was a serious debate. Should we be on Android? And, you know, it takes a lot of resources, new knowledge. You know, it, it wasn't an obvious. Well, at the time, it was crazy because we decided to only be on the iPhone because I had this belief that we needed to move as fast as possible to understand product market fit. And everyone at the time, every other competitor had both an iPhone and an Android version. And they were telling investors, like, why would you ever go with these guys who only have an iPhone app when we've got both? And I remember hearing the argument, you guys should really think about both because you have to be available to everyone everywhere. And so then you've got the square photo sacred cow. Yeah, I remember. Um, okay, so first of all, when you wake up in the morning as a CEO of a company and you look at the app store and the app store is full of apps about your app, but to fix a feature of your app, which <laughs> is that you only allow square photos. And all these all these apps were like, uh, I don't know what they were called, but they would add white or black bars to the side of your photos to basically make them fit into a square. You're like, all right, we're missing something here. We're not taking our own lesson, which is to look at what problems people have and solve them. I immediately realized like we had to change what we thought was Instagram, uh, which was square photos only, if we were going to cater to a larger audience that didn't want to post a square photo always, they didn't want to crop out their friend. And, oh man, I remember the internal groups at the time, like someone commented, is this the end of Instagram as we know it? And the answer, by the way, was yes. And it turned out we changed it in a fundamental way, just not in a terrible way. So I remember like leading on the product side, you ha you just said, what do I want the future to be? One where people are annoyed and have to download these helper apps to fit uh, their photos on Instagram or one where we just like help people do what they want to do. And I just decided the latter. And I think that served us well in every case. And the other thing I, I remember seeing is there are a lot of companies who had been around for a while that hadn't changed anything about their core product, and they just got stale. Probably one of the biggest sacred cows then was, do you compete with Snapchat? Yeah. So how, like, what was your thought process there? Because they were 
pretty different value proposition from Instagram, at least at the time. I think a lot of it's watching what people are doing. So the behavior we started seeing, there were a couple of things that really stood out. One would be people would post a photo on Instagram. Let's say that, you know, it could be a celebrity who's at an event and they would say, hey, I'm at the Grammys for the rest of this. Go to my snap. And we're like, huh. And you talk to them like, why are you doing that? And they would say, it's not cool to post more than once a day. We'd weirdly built this on product Instagram. on Instagram that like was self-limiting. Like the social norms had been built around the feed where you talk to teenagers and you they would have the same feeling. They'd say, you never double Insta. I remember this interview we did. They're like, you never double Insta except on prom and maybe graduation, maybe, right? Like, so, huh, like we looked at this, we're like, wow, we've built a product with such a high quality bar for its main content surface that we're limiting everybody from being able to share more. And what are they doing instead? They're finding avenues. It's just like, uh, you know, water escaping like a pipe. They're like, oh, we could go to the snap thing where the norms are post 20 times a day. We have stories. Like, it's totally normal. Yeah, you had streaks. Yeah. You want to post a bunch. But then you talk to people and they're like, and it's a pain. Like, I already have an audience here, but I have to, like, go rebuild an audience. And, like, there's no real search over there. And what they're telling you implicitly is, like, your product is not serving some core need they have that is very adjacent to the other thing that you are serving. So in the end, like the design aside, and like that was the thing we ended up spending a lot of time on is how to make it really Instagrammy. The reason it was, you know, a conversation at all about what to do was that we were literally dropping photos on the floor for people. There's an old saying like, what got you here won't get you there. And unless you shift your perspective on some of those closely held beliefs, you won't actually get to the next level. And I saw folks not change things and then go flatline for a long time or let someone like Instagram come along and just, you know, gobble up a part of their lunch. So I've heard it's interesting and it's kind of resonated with me multiple times in this talk so far, this idea of a product having uh, jobs to be done. Right. And, and Kevin, I've heard you talk about this before, this Clay Christensen theory of jobs to be done. So were you guys thinking about that as it related to Snap at the time? We were. But I'll, I'll tell you, when I read – so I read Clay's book uh, called uh, Competing Against Luck. Yeah. I think it's called that. Um, and actually, I'll, I take that back. I read uh, a different – it was a paper by him that mentioned this idea about jobs to be done. Yeah. Basically, for those listening – if you think about what product or what job a product solves in your life. So, you know, if you drink a bottle of water, it's serving, you know, to help you not be thirsty, right? If a job to die, not to yeah, die. Not to die. <laughs> Let's double click on that for a second. I mean, why do you drink smart water versus, you know, Calistoga water versus Voss, which comes in like a really nice glass? Right. So it turns out there are markets for all of these because, you know, Voss, like when I'm hosting a dinner party, do I want like a beautiful, nice glass looking thing on my dinner table or do I want some plastic athletic bottles, right? When I'm working out, do I want some plastic athletic bottles? Yes. Do I want glass? No. So you have to start asking yourself, what job are you hiring the product for? And it goes beyond its core use case. It goes to maybe a social use case, like I want to impress other people or utility wise. I, I want to just be able to stick a bottle in my backpack when I'm working out and not worry about it. So you start asking what jobs uh, does someone hire this product to do in their life? And I looked at Instagram. I was like, I wonder what job people are hiring Instagram for. And we came up with some simple ones. It was like, one, people really want to share the joy of a moment with other people. And I think at that moment, and this sounds like a little bit like a bad like business school blog post title, but like, are you like a mission slash jobs driven company? Yep. Or are you a product driven company? Mm -hmm. And 
if you're a product-driven company, you identify with the product you've built and you're like, that's that, right? This is what we are. This is what we are. Like Tesla is just the roadster, yeah. right? Or are you a mission slash jobs-driven company when you're like, actually, we just really want to help people get from point A to point B without using fossil fuels. I'm not sure that's what they shoot for, but let's go with that for a second. And then you realize, actually, it doesn't matter. Like there are some, you know, families like my own that need an SUV. There are some families that want, you know, a smaller, cheaper, more efficient version. There's some people that want the luxurious version. And that's all within the same job that you're being hired for. And Instagram was being hired to share these wonderful moments with people on the go. And it turned out stories, to get it back to the original topic, was a great way of doing that that we didn't serve. It was not just the highlights of your day, but the every moments of your day, right? Now, do you think it was easier for you to add some of the functions associated with Snap and Instagram? Or do you think they could have done the same and added Instagramness, if you will, yeah. to Snap? I think it's really hard to play the counterfactual and be, be like an armchair historian. Like it's really hard for me to look back. But what I will say is that the biggest thing that kept us from adding anything unrelated to the core Instagram product was the feeling of like giving up what we were initially. But the second you realize that's a really selfish thought and what you should be there to do as a CEO or as a co-founder pair or as anyone who works at a company is to literally serve the people that use your product day in and day out. You need to just build what they want build what they're asking for. Whether it's verbal or not, they're asking for more stuff. Yeah. Getting over that hump was the hardest thing because it was like, okay, I'm gonna put my pride aside and I'm going to give people what they're asking for. And we did that and I think worked really well. Now, I think it worked easily for us because you can always go from being very public to being more private, but there were still hurdles. I mean, people thought like, oh, like Instagram's really about just craft and beauty and when we were thinking about adding this, I mean, there was a big debate of whether or not this would ever even work because people just thought about Instagram as, as highly crafted. Think about how many reasons we would have found yeah. to kill it. It's like, oh, it definitely hurts content production and feed, right? Like if you now have two places you can produce on Instagram, you're probably gonna share a little less, you know, in feed. But it turns out that you share so much more in stories that it like more than makes up for it. But then you're like, oh, well, we make all our money in feed. So like, what would we put? So there would, it's, it's almost like you're just putting all these fish hooks out for like criticism. Mm -hmm. yeah. And like, I don't know like what you would call them, but like they're the killer arguments that will kill your product. You're just fishing for them. Yeah. And the thing is, someone who has a negative argument against doing something bold is always going to have more data than you yeah. who are trying to do something new that has no data mm -hmm. on gut instinct or at least understanding the consumer. So in some way, we were like, let's bet the farm, <laughs> right? You know, Kevin, you, you've read a lot of books and have a lot of opinions about good ones. Are there, are there books that you think are particularly good for founders? You know, we talked a little bit about Clay Christensen. He's got a few, but are there others that you really like? Number one would definitely be Competing Against Luck. I, there are a lot of business books that you can read, but Competing Against Luck, if you're a product person, if you're responsible for selling something to people, whether it's for free, like Instagram, or, or just like getting it in someone's hands, knowing what job you're solving for people is the most important thing I think a product person can do. Um, the second one, I really enjoyed Principles by Ray Dalio. Yeah. Um, you don't have to agree with every single thing in the book, but 
man, a structured way of thinking about how to make decisions. Uh, we, Mike and I talk all the time about like, you know, what is the expected value of this decision? What's the variance of this decision? Um, you know, what's the downside case of this decision in front of us? Those types of things that I learned through that book, uh, I think were extremely helpful as a founder as well. What about you, Mike? I love the history and sort of hearing other founder stories, but especially ones that are not in necessarily identical fields. So one I loved, like year one or year two of Instagram, when like things were hard late nights was, uh, did you ever play Prince of Persia? It's like a game back in like the like 90s. The guy who wrote it, solo founder, he was alone at the time. And like at the time you could make a game alone, basically like the whole thing he did himself. He kept a journal throughout all of that experience and he published it much later. So you can go on and just read this guy, like figuring out things for the first time, solving new problems, like kind of what we were feeling when we were like, how do we get the database to survive to tomorrow? How do we get filters to work on the new GPU that they have? Like all these like technical challenges that you're facing and then conquering, but then also doing it in the context of I'm building a company and now people depend on me and like, how's this going to go? And just knowing that you're not going through a journey for the first time, I think is really important. Being able to step back and say, not necessarily who's done exactly this, but people who have done things similarly and how do they approach problems and what can I learn from that? And how can you say, all right, like how do I get to the next challenge? How do I survive this near fatal experience? So um, fair number of founders out there will be listening here. What is the one piece of advice that you'd give founders that you haven't already? I think be more open, especially with your co-founders, but with your team earlier and bring them along. And that transparency, which was something that, you know, I think we'd seen other companies in different molds, like hold secrets really closely or guard them and not talk about with the team and like not talk about the rationale behind decisions. And over time, I think we became more and more and more transparent rather than less. And I think that was actually a superpower of ours. It meant we ended up having all the hard conversations about stories with many people instead of just being like, no, we're doing this. And by the way, everybody's finding out the day before launch along with everybody else. But instead, it actually meant that I think people felt like they could bring up like, hey, I actually am excited to work on this. Or have you thought about this different perspective? So transparency is a strength. And I think that kind of like honesty and willingness to engage with the team proved to be the way we ran the company over time. All great ideas are going to get told no by a lot of people. I could list, and I won't, but I could list the number of investors that passed on our seed round, that passed on our A round, that passed on our B round. It's hard to scale things to a a billion plus people, right? Yeah. But even the things that have grown to that size have detractors the entire way. So you have to know that you're going to hear that constantly. Now, here's the bad part. The bad part is that bad ideas also get told that they're bad ideas. <laughs> so it is not like a sure thing when you hear that your idea is bad. All you know is your non-consensus. You exactly. don't know if you're right. You, exactly. <laughs> Don't let the, the negativity get to you. Be open to it and be objective about the feedback that's coming back and ask yourself, do I have data to support it or not? I think that's one of the most important things to do because you're going to hear that's a bad idea or you shouldn't do that over and over again, no matter what your idea is. Pick a random idea. People are going to say no. Part two is that you're not going to get a lot of data really quickly. So you got to make sure it's something you care deeply about. Instagram, it's almost as if it came out of our DNA. It was the thing we wanted to work on so badly that it didn't matter if it was a bad idea. We loved it. And Mike and I were talking the other day. We were like, 
man, do you remember like knowing that Instagram was working or not? And I was like, no, I just remember wanting to work on it and think it was the coolest thing ever. And like, I didn't want to do anything else. I just wanted to do this. Have it come out of you rather than go looking for it. Yeah, it's like um, we like to say sometimes the best way to come up with a good startup idea is to don't try to think of a startup. Yeah. Go to where the world drives you. Like Go to where your energy naturally is and double down on it and just hope that it's a good business idea, you know, or form it into a good business idea. So I'm, I'm right on the same page as you. I think then it all just, it comes together. And, uh, you know, will it be as big as Instagram? I have no idea. But uh, it's certainly, if it doesn't work out, you'll have had a, a wild time. Well, guys, thanks for thanks for taking the time. It was fun talking to you. Thanks for having us. Great. Yeah, cool. so fun. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at m2jr, and please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision.